God, help us. Give us receptive hearts, humble ears. Lord, make the book live to us. Make Your Word live to us tonight. We need Your Word. We need to be built up in spiritual food. Our souls need fed. So take our hearts, take and seal it. Seal them, Lord, that we would walk with You faithfully, regardless how we feel, regardless how our day was. May You open up our ears to hear wonderful things from Your Word tonight. Challenge us, encourage us, press us on in our faith tonight, we ask. In the precious name of Jesus, Amen. What is peace? Peace. What is peace? You think about that? P-E-A-C-E. What is peace? I'm ashamed to say that when I think of peace, unfortunately, the first thing that comes to mind is bell-bottoms, afros, and Volkswagens. I don't know about you. Something like perhaps this. If you Google peace, this is what comes up. You scroll through this. We've got the peace sign. And even though the 60s and 70s were a long time ago, Every time I hear the word, that's what pops up. Don't scroll down too far. I don't know what else comes to mind when we think of the word peace. But really, this is what comes to mind, unfortunately, when I think of the word peace. Too often, I want to tell you, this week has been extremely convicting for me as I studied the word of God. However comical these images or ideas are for us, it was telling of my great misunderstanding of what biblical peace is. What is biblical peace? What does it mean? What does it mean for us? I was surprised and convicted with my lack of understanding. Inner peace is talked about all the time, right? Yesterday, today, and tomorrow, inner peace. And per usual, as I searched it up, there's a 12-step on Wiki, 12-step process, uh, fortunately with pictures, okay, so I knew how to get the inner peace. I looked through that. That left me still wondering. We have to look at the Word of God, don't we? The, word is full, or the world is full of ideas about peace. Peace. We hear peace all the time, but what is peace? What is biblical peace? I'm not talking about out-of-body mystical experience. I'm talking about the kind of peace that Jesus talks about in John 14, 27. He says this, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. That's peace. Jesus says this is peace. I'm not going to give you peace like the world gives you. The world offers you temporary peace. The world offers you things that imitate peace. Jesus says, I give you real peace. He's speaking to the disciples here, and He's going to leave. And He's going to give us His Holy Spirit as He goes. He says, I'm going to leave, and why leave? I'm going to leave with you my peace. I'm talking about harmony with God and man. What Christ calls in our text tonight, what He calls us to is simple. It's really simple. It's this. Be at peace with one another. However, being at peace with one another, doing this, putting your mouth where the money is, that's altogether different. And it's difficult. Walking in peace, living in peace with one another. Easier said than done, isn't it? When we come back to our first question, what is peace? If it's not the Afros, the Volkswagens, and the peace signs, what is peace? Well, the word that uh, New Testament most often uses is the word erene. Erene appears 92 times. It's a lot in the New Testament. It pops up and it means this. Of course, peace, rest, tranquility, harmony, concord, exemption from rage and havoc of things like war. Real peace. True peace. Inward contentment and harmony that can't help but make its way. When it lives on the inside of a believer, it can't help but make its way to the surface. Okay? The Word of God is heavy. It's heavy with references and helpful description of, of what peace is. I wasn't just amazed in my study 
about my lack of knowledge. I was amazed with the breadth of time and the sheer amount of text that God gives the idea of peace. All the general letters, that is, all these New Testament books, general letters that go out or that were written to churches, a church at large, all of them include, include exhortations to peace. Keep the peace. Be at peace with one another. They appeal to peace. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, who wrote nearly half of what we call the New Testament. If you have a Bible here tonight, that's the second half of the Bible, the New Testament, the covenant that we live in today. Half of it, Paul wrote, and he opens each of his letters with this, grace and peace to you. Grace and peace to you. Grace and peace to you. Jewish people in that culture, Jews in that culture back then and still today, they greet each other how? Say it again. Shalom. 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 I don't think they bow when they do it like that, but that's what comes to mind. Again, my great misunderstanding with the word peace. But they still today greet each other with the word shalom, peace. The series we're working through tonight, the series we're working through all semester is the one another's of Scripture. Before we get into the one another's, be at peace with one another, I want to look at, again, our vertical relationship with God. This semester, we're focusing a lot on what are you doing with one another? Like tonight, and during the week, in Sunday mornings, how are you interacting with one another? We're focusing a lot on what do you do with one another. We've talked about loving one another, speaking truth to one another. But before, before we talk about our relationships here, I want to remind you again, we have to talk about our relationship with God. If we're going to look at peace, we have to know what peace is from God first. If we can understand peace, we need to look at the Word we can't just look at the word Irene. We need to look at the author of peace, the author of the word God, the God of peace. Okay, six times in the New Testament, God is called, He calls Himself the God of peace. Often it's in what we call the benediction or the blessing. At the very end of a book, the author will often close with saying, this is the God of peace or God of peace. He will say again again, like a verse like this, 2 Corinthians 13.11, Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. I don't know how many of you know, but my wife is back there. Her name's Brooke. And we have a little daughter named Harmony. Any of you ever wonder why we named our daughter Harmony? Listen, because the God of peace is the God that rules the universe. And we love the idea that this, God exists in peace with Himself. In perfect, here's the best word to describe it, Harmony. The triune God of the universe has always in eternity past and looking forward for all of eternity will exist in perfect unity and harmony with Himself. He is the God of peace. The God of peace. In the 2 Corinthians 13.11 verse, I doubt that very many people, whether you're a believer here or not tonight, would take issue with a verse like this. I mean, let's be honest. There's some controversial and some difficult texts and we're going to look at one of them tonight. But he says things like, Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. The God of love and peace be with you. There's two more one another's in that very verse that we're talking about. One another's. But let me ask you a question. I had to ask myself this question this week. Imagine this. You're driving down South 19th and you pull up behind a guy at a stoplight. He's driving a little Honda Civic. It's a little rusted out and he's got a bunch of bumper stickers. Is that foreign in Bozeman? Not at all. Okay. Every other one. And on this Honda Civic, you pull up and it says, God of peace and love. What comes to mind? What do you think about? I don't know. What do you, anybody want to volunteer? Don't volunteer. I don't, 
want you to have to embarrass yourself, but here's, I'll embarrass myself. Here's what I would have thought before studying this better. Hippie, that's probably, he's probably not talking about the God of the Bible. Is that critical or what? But I just had to ask myself, honestly, what would I think if someone's bumper sticker said, the God of love and peace? I want to suggest to you that we need a paradigm shift. We need to rethink, redo, repent in our thinking. At least I have in my thinking concerning the God of peace. And realize what he says about himself here in the, the mere breadth of Scripture that it gives to talking about peace is important. He is the God of love and peace. God is a God of peace. And if God is the God of peace, the question is naturally, how do we be people of peace? Isn't it? If He's the God of peace, how do we be people of peace? Or as Matthew 5.8 says, peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers, for, theirs, or for, those, for they shall be called the sons of God. So what about you and I? That's the question. Well, I want to turn with you. I want you to turn with me to Galatians. Galatians is in the New Testament that we talked about. It goes Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, and then it goes to Galatians. Galatians is a short letter. It's written by Paul. I want you to turn to chapter 5. And follow along with me in chapter 5 as I read 5, 19 through 21. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idol sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of rage, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned those before you, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Strong language, isn't it? Paul says, these are the deeds of the flesh. I want to suggest to you that though God is a God of peace, we are people of war. Look at some of these words he highlights for us. Strife or discord, jealousy, dissensions or fits of rage, factions, selfish ambitions and disputes. Do any of those things sound peaceful to you? No. In fact, I would say they're the antithesis of Antithesis, maybe is that the word? Yeah, opposite. Antithesis of peace. <laughs> if you didn't know, Brooke's like the vocab queen, and so I'm looking at her, she's going like this. That's not good. But antithesis of peace. We don't want strife, but naturally the deeds of the flesh are this. Strife, dissensions, jealousy, selfish ambitions. And people who practice these are anyone B.C., before Christ. Anyone who's before Christ is people of dissensions. We are people of war, naturally. In fact, in Romans 3, in a part where Paul is talking about everyone, all creation, all creatures, he's going on and on about our sin. He says in verse 17 this, the way of peace they have not known. Isn't that an incredible statement? Anyone, any of us in our natural state, the way of peace we have not known. Buddha said this. I came across this as I was studying the topic of peace. Let me tell you, Buddhism is not a peaceful religion. Let me just say that plain and simple. I've been to parts of the world that practice Buddhism, and it is a violent, violent religion. What we have in Bozeman, what we have in America, is an adulterated version of Buddhism. It's not Buddhism. Buddhism is a violent religion. But Buddha said this, Peace comes from within. Do not seek it without. What does the Bible say is within? Strife, enmity, dissensions, jealousy. There's nothing good inside of here apart from Christ. Mm -hmm. 
If we want peace, I can't look inside. I've got to look outside. I've got to do the exact opposite of what Buddha says. I've got to look without. Isaiah 48.22 says there's no peace for the wicked. Plain and simple, the Bible tells us that anyone outside of Christ is wicked. We're wicked people. Before Christ makes us a new creation, these things characterize us. I think about as I was thinking about not just Scripture, but sporting events, marriages, music on main. I was thinking about the conflict, the dissensions, the strife. When I go, I love going to the games, basketball, football. I love going to these games, but time and time again, what happens? People are arguing and fighting. In the stands, in the, in the tailgates, in all these places, people are they're in strife. And in all these marriages... How many marriages end in divorce these days? You've heard the number. Almost half. The only reason the number's dropping at all is because people aren't getting married. They're just living together anymore. So they can just move out without all the paperwork. Strife, enmity. These are, we are people of war. We are people of dissension. I, I took a minute to look into what I thought were uh, parent people who had written a fair bit on war and on law. I wanted to consult what we'd call experts, secular experts on war and law. And I came across this. Conway W. Henderson, in Understanding International Law, writes this. One source claims that 14,500 wars have taken place between 300 or 3,050 B.C. and the late 20th century, costing, get this, 3.5 billion lives. What a tragedy. Leaving only 300 years, 3,500 B.C., 20th century A.D., leaving how many years of peace? 300. Not consecutive years, 300 years where there hasn't been on some worldwide scale war. Isn't that incredible? I took a little bit of time to just research war and I came across all the current wars that are happening in the world right now. And if you did this, I bet it would be, it was staggering for me. I dug a little deeper. In Lawrence Hint, or Lawrence. Keeley's book, a professor at University of Illinois, his book is War Before Civilization, he says this, approximately 90 to 95% of known societies throughout history engaged in at least, at least occasional warfare and many fought constantly. Does that surprise you? It surprised me a little bit, but I don't think it should if we take an honest look at Scripture and get this, if we take an honest look at ourselves. I kept digging. I wanted to know what are some of the biggest wars that have happened. Get this. Six, six of the nine most deadly wars in history have occurred in the last 160 years. Since 1850. And four have occurred, or excuse me, four have occurred in the last 160, or no, four. I wrote this down wrong, but I'm remembering the statistic. Four have occurred since 1900. And six since 1850. You're a people of war. That's just the facts. In two weeks, you heard an Andrew, Andrew announce this, in two weeks we'll look at the church of Christ worldwide and how since God has established the church, literally millions of Christians have lost their life for the faith. We're a violent people. So, after all this, how do you become a peacemaker? How do you become a peacemaker? Well, I want to suggest that you look at what Second Thessalonians calls the Lord of peace. What Isaiah says is the Prince of Peace. You look to Christ. Because Christ is the Lord of Peace. 
And we don't stand a chance of having true peace without Him. How do we go from a man or a woman of war to a people of peace? You look at Christ. You look at, as Ephesians 6.15 calls it, the gospel of peace. The gospel of peace. Once you, if you're still in Galatians, turn back in your Bible to Romans. You don't have to go too far, but go back to Romans. You should go back through First uh, and Second Corinthians. You should go back through Acts. Or no, you'll come to Romans first. So go to Romans chapter 5. And look at verse 1 with me. We establish that we're natural enemies of God. And Romans 5 continues with that thought. It says, Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. How can we be people of peace? How can we have peace with God after all this stuff going on inside of our heart? How? The Prince of Peace. The Lord of Peace. is the only way. The Gospel of Peace. This is incredible. We are natural enemies of God. Paul tells us just a few verses later, verse 10. And he's broken down the barrier. He's broken down the dividing wall. We're enemies with God in our natural state. And he puts us at peace. How? We've been justified by faith. What's justification? Sometimes you'll hear people say, it's just as if I've never sinned. Justification. That's true. That's part of it. That's not all of it, but it's just as if you'd never sinned. Jesus took all your sin upon Himself. The punishment for your sin. God crushed Jesus under that weight of sin. He justly killed. He justly crushed. He justly punished Jesus. So we could have peace with Him. Just as if I'd never sinned. But not just as if you'd never sinned. Also, He took the righteousness of Christ and put it on the believer's account. That's truth. That's good news. That's the gospel of peace. The prophet Isaiah testified that upon him, that's talking about Jesus, upon him would come the punishment. That's the heavy, wrathful hand of God against sin would come the punishment that brings us peace. Hundreds of years before Christ walked the earth, it was prophesied that Christ would take the punishment so we could be at peace with God. This is so important. We cannot be at peace with one another until you're at peace with God. At peace with God. This is the Gospel, that through faith we can receive the sacrifice of Christ and be at peace with God, though we were formerly enemies. Colossians 1.20 expands on this idea. It says, and through Him, that's Jesus, He's reconciling all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace, there's our word, irene, peace, by the blood of His cross. How does He do it? By the blood of His cross. Jesus died a violent death. A violent death. Why? So we could be at peace with God. He made peace by the blood of His cross. What a marvelous truth. Amen? What good news. Amen? Amen. Amen. And now we're called, Colossians 3.15, to rest or let the peace of Christ dwell in your hearts. Let the, the peace of Christ dwell in your hearts. And 2 Corinthians 5 talks about being ambassadors of reconciliation. Now that we've been reconciled to God, now that God brought us at peace with Him, what do we do? We're ambassadors of reconciliation. We're ambassadors of peace. So we go tell people, there's a gospel of peace and you're an enemy of God and you can be reconciled to Him through the Prince of Peace. That takes us to our text. We talked about the God of peace. talked about how we are people of war. We talked about how to be at peace with God. Now turn to Mark. Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9 with me. Matthew, Mark. It's the second book of the New Testament. 
That's where I want you to go. And start with me in verse 33. Verse 33. And they came to Capernaum. So Jesus and His disciples are way up in the north in Capernaum around the Sea of Galilee. And they came up to Capernaum. And, when, and He was in the house and He asked them, this is Jesus, what were you discussing along the way? But they kept silent for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And when he sat down and called the twelve, he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last and servant of all. And he took a child, put him in the midst of him, and taking him in his arms, he said, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me. Whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. I'll tell you what happened just before this. Jesus told the disciples again. He said, I'm going to die. I'm going to be put to death, and on the third day I'm going to rise again. And how do the disciples respond? What's the text tell us? They argue about who's greatest. Isn't this just like them? Isn't this just like us? We marvel in the truths and the beauties of the gospel, and then we talk about who's greatest, who's doing the best stuff. No different. The disciples were in dissension. They were arguing amongst themselves. Look at verse 38, coming off of this. John, I referenced this two weeks ago when I talked about who's John? He's the apostle of love, right? Not here. John, verse 38, says, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. We tried to stop him because he was not following us. What's happening here? John's jealous. He says, it's us four and no more. If you're not in this club, you don't count. Don't be casting out demons. Don't be doing good unless you're coming with us. So Jesus responds, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be soon afterwards to be able to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For I say to you, uh, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. So in Mark chapter 9, the disciples are first arguing about who's greatest. And then John, and by extension, probably the other disciples are fired up because people aren't like them. They're not following them. They're not doing things their way. And it's in the context of these arguments that Jesus goes on an extended discourse in verses 42 through 50. Our verses are verse 49 and 50. So in verse 42 through 48, he talks a lot about hell. He talks about whoever causes one of these little ones. He's talking about the child on his lap. But what he means is anyone who's a child of God, whoever causes one of these little ones to stumble, um, it would be better if a great millstone was hung around his neck and were thrown into the sea. He goes on to talk about radical amputation. It's better for you to be... Uh, lose an arm or an eye or a hand than to be thrown whole body into hell. And he, in a, an incredible extended discourse on the topic of hell. And that takes us up to verse 49. Verse 48 says, Where the worm does not die, the fire is not quenched. He's talking about hell. Verse 49 says, Everyone will be salted with fire. Everyone will be salted with fire. This is, let me just tell you, this is one of the most difficult verses in the New Testament to understand, bar none. So at least... 15 different ways to understand this verse. What we're going to do is just talk about two of them, and then we're going to talk about the application. What is the application of the interpretation? Because whatever the interpretation is, the application here is pretty clear. Many views. One thing Jesus could be referring to is the Old Testament sacrificial system. Okay? Uh, Old Testament sacrifices, if you're familiar with, all, with the Old Testament, in the Old Testament they had to sacrifice animals. We sang about the Lamb in Agnes Day, didn't we? The Lamb of God. John, uh, 
John the Baptist says in John 1, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. There he's talking about Jesus. He says lamb because he's referring to the Old Testament sacrificial system in which they had to present animals or lambs often as a picture of taking away sin. What they had to do with that sacrifice was to put salt on it. Okay, you tracking? So this animal sacrifice had to have salt on it. Uh, and the reason I say that, or the reason I say that's a pop, popular possible interpretation is because some of you, uh, if you're reading a King James Version or a New King James Version, your verse goes on to say something like, uh, and, this, and so the sacrifices will be salted. What that is is a, is a marginal note. Okay, The scribes, when they were copying these a long, long time ago, one of the scribes, what he did is he said, here's how I've interpreted this. And he said, he's referring back to Leviticus 2. So he writes in the margin there. And eventually, as this got copied down, it got adapted into the text. Are you tracking with me? I know this is a little bit technical, but I want you to understand what happens here sometimes with the text. We have the earliest and best manuscripts of this. And all they say in verse 49 is, for everyone will be salted with fire. So one possible interpretation of this verse is it's talking about sacrifice. It's talking about radical sacrifice. And in this case, the interpretation would lend itself to Romans, 1, or Romans 12. Present yourselves as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. Everyone will be salted with fire. If you're a sacrifice to God, you'll be salted with fire. Okay? I know that's a little bit technical, but I just want you to understand where we're going with this. Here's what I think it means. That's one possible interpretation. Here's what I think it means. It means that everyone is going to experience fire, either in this life or in the next. In this life, the fire comes through trials, fiery trials, difficult times, testing, self-denial, selfless attitude that we have to have that we're tested with in order to be refined. In the next life, because of the extended discourse on hell, those who don't believe, those who don't follow Christ in this life will experience fire in the next life. Okay? So for believers, we'll be salted with trials in this life. If you're an unbeliever, the fire awaits you where the worm does not die, where the fire is not quenched. Hard truth, real truth. That's why I believe it's saying. That takes us to verse 50. Okay, and here's our text. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Remember, salt's a good thing, right? It's very important in the culture at that time. They don't have refrigeration way back then. Okay, so it's not like they can drink something and then stick it in the refrigerator. It's not like they can, anybody going hunting yet, kill something, and then you cut it up and you refrigerate it or freeze it. They can't do that. So what they use is salt as a preservative. I read a teacher, a rabbi at that time. He said, the world cannot survive without salt. Salt's so important. And so Jesus uses this as a picture. Sometimes retailers at that time, people who sold salt, if you can imagine the roadside booze, some people sold salt, but some people were cheaters and they would cheat this way. They would mix other minerals with the salt, like gypsum and other minerals to dilute the salt and to take away its saltiness. Okay? Other times, since most of the salt in those days came from veins in the ground or the Dead Sea or areas around, sometimes... That salt, even though you know anyone who knows chemistry knows that uh, salt is a stable compound, sometimes because of the elements, the weather, it would corrupt, it would change, it would adulter that salt. So Jesus uses that picture. Keep that picture in your mind. And he says this, If the salt has lost its saltiness, how will it be salty again? 
So if the salt loses its effectiveness, it doesn't do any good, does it? It can't preserve. Jesus says in another place, all the only good thing it can do is you throw it out and it gets trampled underfoot by men. Another way to say this is if the salt isn't salty anymore, how you, what salt are you going to salt the salt with? How much wood could a woodchuck chuck if a woodchuck could chuck wood? How are you going to make it salty? You can't. And listen closely. That's why it's so silly. It's so... Quite frankly, it's just so against God's Word when believers try to look as much like the world as they can to impact the world. Christ says we've got to be different. In order to be salt, we have to be different. You look different as a believer. You walk different. You walk in the light. And so looking just as much, as the world, just as much like the world as possible doesn't work. It's like mixing pure and good salt with unpure minerals. It dilutes the salt and it makes it worthless. And it makes our, listen, it makes our witness less salty. It makes us less effective. Believers, we need to be salty. This is one of my favorite New Testament pictures. Being salty. Being a preservative in our world, in our culture, in our time. We ought to be salty people. We ought to be distinct and flavorable. Well, if you're wondering how this fits in with peace, this is how the salty, the pious, the holy character, it helps yourself or himself, whoever's in this text, or talking about you or me, it helps us be at peace. And it helps other people be at peace. Jesus gives this long discourse about hell. He gives us these two verses that are, to be quite honest, difficult to understand. The application is so clear. Be at peace with one another. They've been fighting. They've been arguing. They've been disputing about silly things, meaningless things. And Jesus says, be at peace with one another. Be at peace with one another. It's immediate and direct application. So being a salty preservative makes you a catalyst for peace. This is how you be at peace with one another, Jesus says. If you're not peaceful, you have a hard time being salty. If you're arguing with other believers, if you come in here tonight, or if you're on campus, or if you're in the workforce, or if you're at NBC, whatever it is, if you're not being peaceful, you're not going to be very salty. Just not. This is one of the most common excuses, and sometimes it's just a smokescreen, but sometimes it's a legitimate excuse. Why do I see believers fighting? If the gospel works, what's going on? Why aren't they at peace? This is an important idea. This is an important application for us. Be at peace with one another. Being at peace doesn't mean merely avoiding conflict. It does mean being salty with one another, putting into practice what you believe in being at peace. I want to look at another verse that I think will be helpful with the same idea. Okay, so you've been good at turning around a verse. I want you to go towards the back to a book called 1 Thessalonians. Okay? 1 Thessalonians is after Colossians. And it's with a bunch of other T books. 1 and 2 Timothy, Titus, 1 and 2 Thessalonians. 1 and 2 Thessalonians is at the beginning of those. I want you to go to chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And look with me at verse 12 and 13. 12 and 13. 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 and 13. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. This text isn't hard to understand. It's just really straightforward and simple. It's this. Respect those 
who labor and are over you and admonish you. Respect your leaders. In the context, respect your pastors. Respect your elders. Respect those who are leading you. And two, esteem them highly, very highly in love. Why? Because of their work. He gives us a reason even. Because of their personality? No. Because they're hip or cool or because they're not hip or cool? No. But because of their work, because of their labor, He calls us to esteem them very highly in love. Very straightforward, but it's easily skimmed over and I find that it's easily neglected even for myself. Okay? To esteem very highly in love means to have the very highest respect or highest honor, highest regard. And when you do this, get this, when you practice this, being at peace becomes easier for you. When you submit, when you esteem very highly in love, when you have good respect and regard for leaders, there's no quarreling with or about leadership. Okay? So, simple, straightforward verse, but this is good for us. You need to understand peace with one another and peace with leadership and peace with one another happens when these kinds of things happen. It's no accident that the author links these two things together. Okay? So further, and just to go further on this verse, a way that you can respect, a way that you can honor, a way that you can esteem leaders is to be at peace with one another. Few things take more time, few things are more spiritually or emotionally draining than dealing with conflict among believers. I just tell you, few things break my heart more than seeing conflict amongst one another. Few things are more spiritually taxing. And I think few things are a poor witness to a lost and dying world. Hebrews 13.7 says this, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. The principle is the same. It's not going to be advantage to you if you're at conflict with one another and if the leaders are taxed over you and if they have to do it with groaning and not with joy. That's not to your advantage. That's not to your help. That's not going to make you happy. That's not going to help you. So whether it's men and women, like we're going to talk about next week as Rick Holland talks about relationships, or whether it's men and men, or whether it's women and women, be at peace with one another. Be at peace with one another. We're given further instruction in, in the verses that just follow this about our conduct towards one another. Verse 14, we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. There's another one another for you. Always seek to do good to one another. Do good to one another and to everyone. Okay, the idea of being at peace permeates and proceeds and assumes itself on so many texts in the Bible. In order to practice a lot of things, we need to be at peace with one another. In fact, we have to consider the implications of being at peace with one another before we seek to do what we're doing right now. To gather in worship as believers together. To go, before the God, to go before God. To go before the Lord in worship. Jesus helps us with this idea in Matthew 5, 23. He says this, If you're offering your gift at the altar, and you remember your brother has something against you, go and take care of it. Go and take care of it. Don't keep coming to the altar as a sacrifice to God. Why? Because there's not peace there. There's disunity. There's Discord, there's not good things happening there. So don't keep coming every week, week after week, to your community group. Don't keep coming day after day to the Lord 
go and be at peace with one another. Let me ask you, is there someone here tonight or is there someone outside of these walls that you're not at peace with? That you need to be at peace with? Is there someone that you're in conflict with? Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Go to that person. If that person has something against you and seek to be at peace with them. Ultimately, many of these one another's, many of these shots of advice, they go past the one another level and they bleed into everything else. They bleed into interactions with the world at whole. Okay? They bleed into interactions with other believers, but also with unbelievers. The Bible doesn't just exhort us to be at peace with fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. It exhorts us to be at peace with everyone. Listen to Romans 14, verse 19. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads us to peace and mutual edification. Let me tell you, if we all had that mindset every time we came in here, that'd be a good thing, wouldn't it? That would be a healthy thing. Let me read it to you one more time. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. What is that attitude? It's regarding one another more highly than yourselves. It's seeking mutual edification. What if we had that attitude as we brought people with us into cross life, as we showed up to worship together? What if we were seeking to do what makes for peace and mutual upbringing? Let me tell you something. I see that in so many of you. I see that and it does my heart well. And I want to encourage you, abound all the more in that. Press forward in that. Press on in that. Because it edifies not just yourself, but the whole body. Being at peace with one another. Peace isn't simply this. It's not passivity. It's not conflict avoidance. It's not shyness. It's not backing away every time there's a conflict. No one's, I'm going to say something, no one's more presupposed to a peaceful attitude. We're all at discord and disharmony and disunity before Christ. So just because you're a more quiet person or a passive person doesn't mean you're a more peaceful person. Peace is to be pursued actively. Listen to this. Hebrews 12.14 Strive for peace with everyone. Strive. Work. Romans 14 said, Make every effort to do what leads to peace. Strive for peace with everyone. It's an active pursuit. Romans 12.18 If possible... So far as it depends with you, live at peace with everyone. It's an effort. It's an active role we play. So if possible, as much as it depends on you, and you, and you, and you, and you, and you, and you, be at peace. Be at peace with one another. And you. The reality is, is sometimes you've done, or I've done all we can to live peaceably with someone, and it takes two to tango. That's why God doesn't lay this down as something that should keep you up at night if someone is not at peace with you. It says, so far as you can, so far as it depends on you, and you, and you, be at peace with one another. So sometimes you go to a person, you confess your sins, you ask for forgiveness, and you've done everything that you can, everything within your power to be at peace with them, and you just, it's not up to you anymore. But don't paint that off as an excuse. Know, though, that that's as far as you ought to take it. Strive, press, work to be at peace with them. Okay? Work, be active. Be active in your pursuit to be at peace with God first and also to be at peace with one another. Okay, so let's review. 
the world's definition of peace, my definition of peace before struggling and being convicted and working through the text this week, and Afros, Bell Bottoms, and Volkswagens just don't do it, do they? Now we need the Bible definition of peace. We need the peace that Jesus gives us, not that the world gives us. We are people of war, and God is a God of peace. And we need the gospel of peace that transcends our injustices, that deals with our sin against God and our sin and our guilt and punishes Christ for our sin. We need the Lord of peace. Christ took our punishment so we could have peace. Oh, that's a good thing. We then looked at being salty, respecting leadership, and being at peace with one another in those contexts. Finally, we talked about peace with one another as an active pursuit, not an apathetic thing to be avoided, not an avoidance of conflict, but an active pursuit of peace. Peace, biblically, it's not just a ceasefire. There's not peace on the South Korean-North Korea border right now. There's just merely ceasefire. That's not biblical peace. Peace is harmony and accord with one another. It comes from the author of peace, the God of peace. Do you have peace with God? Friend, student, worker, do you do you have peace with God? Do you know this God of peace? And do you have peace with one another? Let's pray. Romans 15.5-8 May the God of endurance and encouragement grant to you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Jesus Christ that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Amen.